Well, for the first time in quite a few weeks, huh? not the same bumper, different, uh, different beginning because we're in a different book, the book of Psalms. And we're going to be here throughout the summer. Uh, if you know anything about the Bible, you know that we're not going to cover all the Psalms this summer uh, because there's 150 and we're going to get through about eight of those. And so uh, I, we're going to actually be team teaching throughout the summer. Uh, I will teach one week and then one of the staff will teach the next and then we'll kind of rotate through the summer that way to give these guys a chance to uh, preach God's word. Also, give me a time to refuel, and, and it's going to be a great summer. It has, 2020 sure hasn't started out so great. It's, it's been a, a crazy year, and we're only halfway through. And I think if there's ever a time where we need the Psalms, it's at the times that we're in today. What I would say, that well, the Psalms are a couple things. One, they're a hymn book to the ancient church, to the Hebrews, to the early church. They were a, a hymn book. They sang these songs to God, And then also, uh, they're a, a guide to help us know how to pray, a, a way to help us understand how to communicate with God better. Because I think we have this idea that you have to know the right insider language in order to pray, like especially if you're going to pray in front of people, right? You've got to know the right terminology, the right words, and many of you feel very insecure praying in front of people because you think you don't know the exact right words to say. Well, that's, the Psalms will show us that's kind of really a somewhat prideful, but very silly way of looking at prayer because prayer is just talking to God and it's not about impressing other people. And so the Psalms teach us how to open up our lives to God and to, to, to reflect ourselves to God. And so there's 150 Psalms, like I mentioned. When you think of the Psalms, you think of David. Uh, David wrote about half of them, 73 possibly, of the Psalms. And so David did have a big impact. But the Psalms were written actually by many people over a, 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 a span of time of about a thousand years. Many of us maybe didn't realize that it was that long a period that the Psalms were actually written over. And the Hebrew word that we get the word Psalms from means songs of praise. And as I said, these were used as hymns, many of them, to sing in the early church and throughout the generation, throughout the centuries. And a few things I love about the Psalms, as, as you and I have probably, you, we've all spent time reading various Psalms, especially some of the few most popular ones, like Psalm 23. We know that the Psalms are a hymn book, but more than that, many of the Psalms, as the one we're going to look at today, foreshadow Jesus. What does it mean, foreshadow? It means it prophetically points to Jesus in the future. So the language at the time, the context of the time was historical. There was actually something going on at that time that was being written about, but through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it was also foreseeing something greater that was to come later on down the road. And many of them point to Jesus, the Messiah. And so the Bible, as we know, is one big story about Jesus Christ. Now, we do have to be careful because even though it's one big story about Jesus Christ, I mention this a lot, that it's easy to kind of go back into the Scripture and the Old Testament and make it say things that aren't there. And we can find passages and relate those to things, either current events or even to Jesus that maybe were taking too many liberties to say this means this or this means that. The way that we know these references in Psalms point to Jesus is because the New Testament and even Jesus himself used these Psalms to say what they meant. So he tells us these Psalms were meant for this purpose. So we can look at some of these things and maybe have a hint that some of the ones that weren't mentioned in the New Testament were talking about Jesus, but we know definitively the ones that were Jesus and the Apostles talk about. So it's important that we don't just 
take scripture and allegorize scripture as we want to and make it say whatever we want. We get ourselves in a lot of trouble when we do that. And many people have tried to forecast the future and say, here's what's going to happen in the end times based upon my understanding of this stuff. And they make predictions that never, they don't turn out to be true. And then they have to go back and say, oh, I missed something. I did that wrong. or I read that allegory wrong. And so you, I hope you understand that when we read Scripture, we should read it for its historical value. And then as Scripture speaks to Scripture and Scripture interprets Scripture, we can take those Old Testament passages and apply those to New Testament themes. And so it's all laid out there. So I love that about the Psalms. The other thing I love about the Psalms is that the Psalms are in the Old Testament in a nutshell. You have many of the great events of the Old Testament being um, spoken of and referenced in the Psalms. And so as you read through the Psalms, you'll see various things throughout the Old Testament. And then the one that some of us uh, find very uncomfortable is the Psalms teach us about our emotions. Because some people pretend like they don't have any emotions when it comes to God. And I love that the Psalmist and David, they, no matter what season of life that they found themselves in, they expressed that to God. And it was a very emotional thing. It, it, it was from their heart, and they shared their heart. They opened their heart to God. And so that's why I love the Psalms as a guide to help us pray, because they can begin to help us communicate to God in the way that we should, in spirit and in truth. And we get the truth part down a lot, but the spirit part, the fact that we need to allow the spirit to use this text and speak to the whole person, not just to our intellect, to our mind. And, and I use this as an illustration for those who are sitting there going, you know, emotions are bad things. You know, we shouldn't be emotional. All right, tell that to your spouse, okay, right? All right, just be mechanical and robotic to your spouse, and I'm sure they'll appreciate that, and they'll love you more for it, right? So we know that emotions are part of us, and that's how God made us, and we should express those things. So we're in Psalm chapter 2, Psalm chapter 2. Not that Psalm 1 isn't awesome, but if you were here about four years ago, we preached through some Psalms, and I preached on Psalm 1, and so I'm going to cover Psalm 2, but we will jump around and not go in order. So Psalm chapter 2, let me pray, and we'll jump into this. Father God, this is your word, and God, your truth is timeless, and it speaks to us regardless of what the situation in the world is, and it's easy for us in these troubling times, in this day and age that we live, to, to look at the times and try to interpret the times and read into it what we want to read into it, God. But we know that the story of history is your story, and, and it's been going on a long time, and there's been crazy, crazy, incredible, uh, trying, tough times for your church throughout the history. And God, I pray that you will help us to trust you regardless of what our circumstances is, whether our circumstances are an umbrella on the beach or a persecution that we face through our, our, our culture and through our government. Regardless of what we face, May we interpret it in light of your word and your truth. And give us wisdom to do that and guidance to do that through your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So verse 1 through 3. David, and we know it's David because Acts tells us David wrote this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So David is lamenting. He's saying, why are the nations raging? Why are they preparing for battle? Why are they plotting? 
And David seems puzzled. I don't think he's surprised at all. It's not surprised that he's writing here. It's he's puzzled how the people and the nations think that they could go up against God and against God's anointed and have any success whatsoever. All right, we have kids in the room, and I know even though adults are here that you would pretend like, you know, all you want is the meat of the word. You like illustrations too, but this is primarily directed for the kid, but if you like it, then that's okay to admit that, all right? So, so when I was in college, um, I decided one day that I thought it would be kind of interesting to play a one-on-one basketball game against this new guy who had just come to our college and was playing on the university's basketball team. And I thought it would be fun to go down and ask him. I, I worked in the weight room. I ran the weight room, and, and so the team had just finished practice, and so the guys were around shooting. I was like, hey, you going to play a game of one-on-one. All right, so that's dumb anyway, because if you've seen me play basketball, you know I'm terrible. But it's also dumb the fact that they actually move around this slow, lanky guy and actually score baskets against him. Well, it was comical. Honestly, it was comical to watch because I could literally not even get a shot off. Everything I threw up, regardless of where I was on the court, he blocked my shot. I think maybe I had one that I threw over my head backwards like that that made it to the rim but missed, of course. But I couldn't even get a shot off against him. I was out of my league totally. And I think that's what David is saying here to the kings of the earth, the Gentile rulers. He's saying, who do you think you are going up against God Almighty? Do you really think that you can plot against him? It's ridiculous. There's no way this can, the outcome can be anything but other failure against God Almighty and against his anointed kings. And as we think about this from a cultural context, how do people do that? We live in a day and age where people deny the existence of God. We know scripture says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And it's foolish to say, I don't believe that there's a God. I mean, it's foolish because just our logic and nature show us that that's just not realistic. I mean, point to Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Paul writes, for the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. So when we think about questions like, why is there something instead of nothing, and how did the universe begin because matter just doesn't create itself, when we think about those type of questions, why do we not arrive at there's got to be a God behind this? Because there's no scientific explanation for those questions. Why is there something rather than nothing? And how did the universe begin? Because matter just doesn't create itself. And so we're left right there at, a, at, at the starting point to say, what am I going to do with the fact that this is unexplainable? Francis Collins, who is a physician and a geneticist, writes this. He says, as the director of the Human Genome Project, and I vaguely know what that is, but I just know this is a really smart guy. He's the director of the Human Genome Project. I have led a consortium of scientists to read out the 3.1 billion letters of the human genome, our own DNA instruction book. And then he says, as a believer, I see DNA, the information molecule of all living things, as God's language and the elegance and complexity of our own bodies and the rest of nature as a reflection of God's plan. So here's not only a doctor, a medical doctor, and a scientist 
but a guy who led the Human Genome Project to map out the entire DNA of the human body, not only does he say that man is complex, but he says it's too complex to be explained through any other process other than a creator God, other than a God who is behind this. So you know what that tells me? That tells me that a denial of the existence of God is not so much logical as it is something else we'll look at in a minute. Because if this guy, whose IQ I'm sure is double most of ours in the room, comes to this conclusion, then it can't just be something that if you're smart enough, you have a big enough brain that you come to the conclusion that God doesn't exist. And so let me just say that, that God is visible. In fact, I would say he's clearly visible, but he's not forcibly obvious. He's not forcibly ob obvious. He's not going to force himself upon you. And why is that? Well, a, a couple things. Job even lamented this in Job 23 when he said, I go east, but he's not there. Talking about God. I go west, but I cannot find him. I do not see him in the north, for he's hidden. I look to the south, and, and he is concealed. And in this passage, he, he's struggling because all this bad stuff has happened to him. And one of his friends has come to him and says, you've done something to deserve this. You better repent of this. And he's, where is God in all this? And so there's times where even people who love God, like we can struggle because it feels like that God isn't there. God's hiddenness sometimes doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense if we think that it's just purely an intellectual, I've got to experience God with my mind kind of thing. Because it's more than that, because God wants us to have a relational connection to him. And so just conquering God or the concept of God with your mind isn't enough. Because God wants you to know him personally, not just intellectually. And so the God of the Bible desires fellowship with us. You look back to the Garden of Eden when Adam walks with God. He's strolling through the garden and he's talking with God. God created us for relationship with him. We were made for fellowship with God. But for those who don't know him and have never experienced this kind of friendship with creator God, the, the, the kind of God that they think of is just this cosmic killjoy, this, this God who just imposes rules and restrictions. And so, of course, they don't want a part of that God, right? So that's the second thing. The first thing is people just deny him. The second one is they just ignore him. They just ignore him. Romans 1, 21, the next verse in Romans. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their heart, foolish hearts were darkened. And it says, goes on and says, they believed a lie. They believed a lie. So this rebellion against God and his appointed rulers, as we see in verse 3, is not so much about the fact that God doesn't exist, but I don't want to believe in a God who's going to restrict me. Look at verse 3. The kings say, let us burst their bonds apart. Who's talking about their bonds? God and in the historical context, the, king, the kings of Israel, the line of David, David and his line, he says, let's burst their bonds apart and let's cast away their cords from us. And so the picture is, which is used often in the Old, Te in Old Testament and New Testament, is this picture of a yoke. And it's these oxen that are connected together through this wooden um, structure that they plow and work together and they're in sync and harmony with one another. And so the kings of the earth look at this yoke and all they see is oppression and, and being restricted. 
But the thing is, we know as Christians, those who are in the room who know Jesus Christ, who have a relationship with God, you know that a relationship with God is anything but oppressive and restrictive. You know, as Buzz pointed out, that it's joy to have God linked up and that God leading the way. And in fact, Hosea, go back to the Old Testament, God says this. He says, I led them, Israel, with cords of kindness and with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. That's Hosea 11.4. Maybe write that in your notes or in your Bible so you can go back and look at that later. Man, that's awesome because it says that the yoke that God desires is one of love and one of protection. The picture is God caring for and feeding his people, kneeling down, bending down to take care of his people. In life without acknowledging God, I just can't imagine what that would be like to not have a relationship with God, not have fellowship with God, to live life on my own. But so many people want to do that. And they want to, they, they want to see these things as bondage. The, the, the concept of God is bondage. Because why? Because they don't want an owner. They don't want somebody who owns them, somebody who is they're responsible to. Just like for those of you who have children, you know, it's, it's nothing that has to be taught. It just comes with the territory that a kid wants to rule his own world, right? A kid wants to make the decisions and wants to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. And so if you've had children, you know that every impulse of their heart is, I want to do this my way. I want to do it when I want to do it. And that's the same thing as adults, except we are a little more subtle with it. I was listening to a song the other day, and I had to pause the song and scratch down the lyrics because I think it says what this is so well. It says, don't you tell me what you think, think I can be. I'm the one at the sale. I'm the master of my sea. Don't most people have that concept? I'm the master of my sea. I'm the one at the sale. Don't restrict me. Don't tell me the idea of God and give me a God who's going to take away my freedom and who's going to say that he's my owner because we're all naturally enemies of God. We're all naturally enemies of God. That's what Romans 1 talks about. People are hostile toward God. And let me say, they're hostile toward the true God. Every person wants to suppress and oppose the true God and his truth. Because why? People, Scripture tells us, love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So people oppose the idea of a holy God, a king, because they realize that such a king would hold them accountable for the sins they love and they don't want to give up. Let me say that again. If you want to write that down, it's good. People oppose the idea of a holy God, a king, because they realize that such a king would hold them accountable for the sins they love and they don't want to give up. David, the author of our song, Psalm, he told Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28.9, he said, if you seek him, he will be found by you. And then Hebrews says, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. God is there. The God of the Bible wants to reveal himself to you. And it takes humility to seek God because we have the tendency to want to create a God that's in our image, right? Not vice versa. Let me explain that for a second. 
we're okay. I said a minute ago that people are hostile toward God, and maybe you think, well, no, no, not so much. I'm not hostile toward God. But you're hostile naturally to the God of the Bible. You may not be hostile to the God that you create in your mind. Look at verse 4 and 5 of our text. This is how God responds to those who are trying to rebel against him, who are trying to, to, to war against him. He sits in the heavens. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, or means that means he scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and testify and terrify, I'm sorry, terrify them in his fury, saying, Think about this. This is how God responds to those who are willing to stand up to him, who have the nerve to stand up to him. He says, he laughs. He says his wrath is against them. And, and here's what I was saying about creating a God in our own image, because what? The world is fine with a God of love, but a God of wrath, not so much, right? A God of justice, a God who does hold us accountable, a God who has a standard that we must, must keep. Because we're fine with a God who we can finagle and work and make it to where anything we want to do, our God is okay with that. And, and listen, that's so subtle. It's so subtle because we're, we can easily spot this in other people. We can spot, spot that in the guy who's committing adultery and, and, and he says, you know, my wife just doesn't love me anymore. I don't love her. And so therefore I'm justified. Even though God said this, he didn't mean that. And we see that and we're like, what? Are you reading the same Bible that I'm reading? But yet we can turn around and we can do the exact same thing, but just different sins in some way justify our sins. Well, it's really not stealing. It's just permanent borrowing, right? I mean, you're right. You know, I, I really plan to, to return that one day. Or, you know, our government's terrible and they're already taxing me too much. So me take, cutting these little corners here, I deserve that. And we all can rationalize and, and make us feel, ourselves feel better by creating a God in our own image versus seeing the God of the Bible who he really is. And so people just don't like this idea of a God of wrath. People so aren't necessarily hostile if you talk about God to their idea of God, but you begin talking about Jesus and it kind of changes the conversation a bit. People hate the God of the Bible. People hate Jesus. So it takes great humility to admit that we're all guilty of this idea of turning God and because we ultimately all love ourselves more than we love God and we attempt to mold him to our image and we don't want God confronting our sins and even our coming to God a lot of times reveals our view of God. The way that we pray to God reveals our view of God. Listen to your prayers. Listen First, listen to your kids pray. It's great that they're praying, but listen to how they naturally default to pray unless you've trained them really well not to pray that way. It's like, you know, give me this, bless this, help this. And it's all about, God, do this stuff for me. And unless we train our kids that the prayers, first and foremost, should be about God and his will, which he laid out a, the structure for us in the Lord's Prayer, where you won't see anything but give us this day our daily bread. What's that? Just enough to get by today, but not my will. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He laid out for us how to pray, yet our default naturally is to pray for what we want. And God, make life better for me. And so if we listen to our prayers, it might reveal to us who we're really worshiping and the God that we're, we're seeking after. And so it takes humility to recognize that we're guilty of taking the simple commands of Scripture oftentimes and twisting them to meet our own agenda 
because we're really, really skilled at being self-swindlers and convincing ourselves what's wrong isn't really wrong and what is right is wrong. We're, we're, we're great at doing flipping that around. Even David, the writer of the psalm, think about him. A man whose scripture refers to as a man after God's own heart. A guy who wrote 73 psalms. A guy who did amazing things. He was a self-swindler, wasn't he? You remember the story? When he should have been at battle, he was on his rooftop. He saw a woman, a married woman. He desired her. He lusted after her. He had the power and authority to go and bring her. He committed adultery with her. And then when it didn't work out to cover up his plan, what did he do? He murdered the woman's husband. And then the prophet Nathan came to David, and he told him the story, this parable. And David is in anger. He says, the guy who did that deserves to die. And Nathan said, David, you're that guy. What? I am. You see, we can see the sin everybody else deserve to die. They're terrible. Me? What? Not me. Right? We're so good at self-swindling ourselves and, and, and convincing ourselves that we're more, more righteous than what we are. And so David was guilty of that. He justified himself every step of the way. And so it takes humility to say, God, I want the God of the Bible. I want the God you reveal who you are in Scripture. I want to walk and have fellowship with that God, you, the true God, and Jesus Christ, who is the image of God and revealed God to us. And so we need to pray, crush our hearts with guilt and help us to, find, to, to, to see your grace and respond to your grace. And when God shows us our sin, we repent of our sin. And instead of maybe sometimes being so eager to change everything out there, we begin with our own hearts and begin to change our own sinful attitudes and thoughts and dreams. Back to verse 2. This is where he starts to refer to the anointed one. Look at, at, at as this is Jesus. Historically, he's referring to David, but prophetically he's referring to Jesus. We know that from Acts. And look at the, the, the verse, verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. It's probably capitalized in your Bible, anointed, saying. And so this anointed, David or the Davidic line, historically, but referring to Jesus. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 24 through 20, uh, 27, this is when Peter and John preached this amazing sermon. We alluded to this last week, full of the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to go into it and read it, but they quote this psalm, Psalm 2 here, they quote this, and then at the end of the psalm, they say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, though whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Did you, did you hear what he just said? He, he named names there. He said that Pontius Pilate and Herod are those kings who plot in vain. And if you go back and read the whole, the whole passage, those are the Gentile rulers, prophetically, that David was pointing to. And so this is Jesus. And, and it's, it's great because this points to a Messiah who's coming that's more than David, more than a mere man, more than a king in the line of David. This is pointing to Jesus. And, and these things that the psalm holds up that are fulfilled through Jesus, no person could fulfill these things. This is so much greater than David. And look at back in verse 5 when he said that God's his wrath is coming and, and his wrath is on these sins. What does he do? He sends the anointed one, Jesus, to do what? To satisfy his wrath. 
Jesus was the ultimate satisfaction for the wrath of the God, which was on sin. We don't have time to go on this deeply. i got to move. But it's awesome the fact that, they're pointing, that David is pointing ahead to a greater one than himself, greater than any king of Israel. And look at verse 6. As for me, I have set my son, no, I'm sorry, my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God's saying, this, no power on earth can keep me from doing what I want to do. No Herod, no Pontius Pilate can stop this, can thwart this. And this is what we saw at the end of Mark. These Gentile rulers, these rulers who thought they could stop God's plan. And back in Psalm chapter 2, we know that that's impossible. Jesus was coming. And he says in verse 7, I will tell of the decree, or I'm going to tell you what God's going to do. The Lord said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. So again, historically, David, the line of David, prophetically, Jesus, much greater than David, Jesus taking his rival place on the throne. Look at verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So what he's saying, God's rule extends throughout the earth and in Jesus that all nations of the world would be blessed, starting with Abraham, But Jesus, the fulfillment of that, and then to the future kingdom where Jesus will return again and every tongue, tribe, and nation will kneel before Jesus and will be part of the kingdom of God. And so I look at these verses and and I I see that in the moments where I want to fear what's going on around me and I want to question the future from myself and my children and I begin to wonder, like, are we going to have what it takes as a nation, to make it. And I begin to, to, to question these things in my mind from a human perspective. I can go back to Psalm 8 and look and say, look, all nations are your heritage. and the end of the earth, your possessions, God's rule and God's reign through Jesus extend through everything. And we can rest in that even as the adversity of what's in front of us seems impossible, that we know the greater truth, which is God is in control. And that doesn't mean we sit back and, okay, whatever's going to happen is going to happen, so let it happen. What did Jesus tell the disciples when he sent them out? He says, be as cunning as a snake and be as innocent as a dove. Be as cunning as a snake and be as innocent as a dove. And we don't have time to break that down, but just fill in the blanks there, what that means in our culture and some things that, that we can take that and apply that to so many conversations that we can get caught up in or so many social media posts where we want to put down our opinions and thoughts. Be as as wise as a a serpent, as cunning as a snake, and as innocent as a dove. Because our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against Satan and the rulers of the darkness is what Scripture tells us. And then look at verse 9. It looks to the second coming. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This points to Revelation 19.15. Let me read this for you. From his mouth, mouth, this is Jesus when he returns, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. What is that saying? He's saying he's going to release the wrath of God like juice flowing out of a winepress. That's what Jesus is doing when he, when he comes back. You know what it tells me? That we can either trust Jesus 
and put our faith in Jesus right now, or, as Scripture tells us, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord, we can be forced, and I don't think it's going to be maybe that kind of forced, it's going to be, I see the glory of God and the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth, and I can't help but to fall on my face before Him because of His holiness and greatness. But at that point, your destiny is, is sealed. What you did with Jesus on this li- in this life determines your future in the next. And so for us, what is, what is the application as Christians? I'm going to talk to Christians, even though we know there are probably people who are not in this room. And the, the application is simple for those who are not. Turn to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the Lamb, the one that this Psalm chapter 2 points to. Look to him. But look at the application, verse 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a call to worship. This isn't a call to be religious. It's not a call to be at church more. It's not part of being a K group next fall. This is a call to worship, to kiss the Son, pay homage to Jesus Christ, submit to Him as your Savior, your leader, your Lord. And if you look at the world's problems and you underestimate Jesus, it's definitely overwhelming. But if you see the King of Kings ruling in power, coming to crush the enemies and to reign and rule forever and ever. Blessed are you who take refuge in that, right? In him, in that security. And serve the Lord with fear. Serve the Lord. You want to break your fear of media, your fear of the world, of future events? Have a greater fear, and that's the fear of God. A fear of God pushes out the fear of everything else. And so if you have a proper understanding of who God is, everything else kind of starts to fall into place and has a perspective that's different than it is maybe right now where it's just, I'm, I'm underwater here. And that's not to make light of your circumstance or the times we live in. What it is to say we serve a greater God and it's his story. And we turn it around and we make it about our, us and our story. And here we are thousands of years before Christ, a thousand years before Christ, And it's already telling us Jesus is coming. And here we are several thousand years removed from Jesus' first coming. And we're saying, even so come, Jesus, take care of this mess. And I think God in this moment speaks to us and he says, okay, step back for a second. What have we said? You're to have a relationship with me. You're to know me. If If you want to brag about anything, brag that you know me, that you walk with me, that you have fellowship with me. And it'll be done when I'm done with it. And until then, you're my ambassador. Take refuge in me. Fear me. Walk with me. And make me known. In your sphere of influence, or those around you, make Jesus known. Lift Jesus up. Live Jesus. Know the Word. And, uh, and, and just live out the simple commands of Scripture. You know, I'm afraid. And, and I, 
my main goal as pastor is to preach the word because, you know, I'm not really that smart to tell you a bunch of other stuff. But I will say this. I think that it's easy to see the enemy as being out there somewhere taking away from us. But I'm sorry to tell you that I think the thing is the church has given away way too much. The church has given away its position. How, you might ask? How many denominations are there? Would anybody even care to guess? That, that don't answer that because I don't know. But there's hundreds, if not thousands. Okay, the church can't get along. We can't agree, right? Pastors, leaders, immorality, church members even in this body. Let's don't make it about out there. Make it in here. Warring and fighting against each other. Parents who are unwilling to take spiritual leadership in the home. And so have we really done a stellar job of representing Jesus as his ambassadors? And so rather than looking outside and, and saying, we can't let this be taken from us. Man, we got to go be the light. we got to take the light to the darkness. God has given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us the church. Let's do what it takes among ourselves to be salt and light to this fallen world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for our hope that rests in him. God, we thank you for families in this room who, as we're going to see in a second on the video from camp, that have invested so much in passing along a legacy of faith to their children and their children's children. And regardless of the world that we live in, whether it's a, a world that is incredibly uh, persecuting the church and, and harming us physically or, or, or taking away our rights, or whether it a, a continues to be in America, a world where we can speak freely the gospel, regardless of the situations, help us to train our children up to be a voice and a light and truth for you. God, give us wisdom to be able to do that by, by knowing your word and investing our time so we can know truth and not just base it on our emotion or what we see on the news, but help us to base it upon your word that's eternal that lasts forever. And God, we thank you again for Jesus who gives hope to this dying world who doesn't know what in the world is going on. And we have the answer. Help us to be the people who give that truth. In Jesus' name. As, as I mentioned our students went off to camp, and we have a video testimony of them. And I just want to say, wow, thank you for sharing the gospel with your kids. Thank you for allowing them to learn and grow in refuge, in your home Bible studies, in promoting them to read the Word on their own. Because if we want a future for our children, our hope isn't in the United States of America. Our hope is in Jesus, and that's where we should invest our time. And so watch as they share and their own words that the difference can't make to them before we sing our last song. My highlight of camp was we had a lot of spiritual conversations on the messages that were shared that night, and we had a lot of, of accountability. The biggest thing that I took from this was submission. Quality of friends and getting to talk about the Word of God. The best thing about camp was that when I went to camp, it reinvigorated me to follow God. While the first year that I went to camp, I was already invigorated. It sparked me, but this second time, it like, reactivated me, and I got right back into my accountability partner. And I just started reading through Psalms 119, which is
is what Pastor Ryan talked about when we were experiencing camp. My takeaway from camp was probably being able to listen to the Word of God from a different perspective. Being able to share testimonies with people and to share mine and get other perspectives of how they see God in their life was a really big impact because it kind of got boring seeing things from my own perspective. To be able to hear someone's life and to be able to pray for them so that it goes better for them was huge. It's kind of sad that it's going to be a whole another year till it happens again, but each year I'm getting to know my buddies and my friends and people I have never met before way better than I did beforehand. It's a really, really great time.